0: This is Radiance Tape number LT3A, a message by Jim Durkin entitled, A General Overview of a Minister's Work, Part 1. Now, tonight I'm going to take a more specific view of what the ministry is required to do. Now, if I were to limit this to just the work of, quote, a pastor in the traditional sense, you would see very quickly that this would be something you'd say, well, how could I do that if I were thinking in terms that I were a pastor? Or if a person were by themselves, you would see very quickly you would be very limited, you would not be able to carry out these things that we are speaking of. And yet you will see if you even have a light understanding of the Word of God that all of these are required of the ministry. It is what they must do in the performance of their duties. So we'll go over these. You'll see the absolute necessity by the nature, the variety, the nature of the work itself will require you then to be in relationship to a great many other people than yourself and a great many other ministries than yourself. You will not be able to carry out these things by yourself. All right, now, point one, I put that a part of the work of the ministry is to preach and teach the word. Now, this presupposes a thorough understanding of the teaching of Scripture. So, before we finish here, I will not give you a thorough understanding of Scripture, but we will take up many doctrinal studies, and we'll study them some very closely, others will move over them very quickly. But it does not mean, because I have moved over them quickly, that you should not go on and make your knowledge of these things pretty exhaustive. Know as much about the book as you possibly can. Now, I point out to you something and you've got to get this down in your heart now that this book is the heart and mind of God expressed. Everything we know about Jesus in other words that he existed that he came to the earth that he was a son of God that he died on the cross the meaning of that death on the cross that he raised from the dead why he raised from the dead what he is doing now what he intends to do our relationship to him everything that we know about that is made available to us through the Word of God by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And if we do not know what this book teaches, then to the degree that you do not know what this book teaches, to that degree, your people will be lightweights in the things of God. Their lives will be very unstable. There is a discipline that is born into people by two things. One, the ministry, having a thorough understanding of God's life, and as much as possible, they are living that life out as they understand it. They won't be perfect in it, but they're living it out the best they understand it. Now if they're doing that, they impart something to the people, even though the people do not have the understanding of the Word of God that they have. But they have an understanding that they're to practice the Word of God, they're to hear it, they're to do it, they're to live by it. It becomes their Bible, see? And that's what we want it to become. We don't want the Bible to be the dusty book that lays on the shelf. And this is a joke in many churches, by the way. You know, uh, where's your Bible? Uh, oh, get the book that Mother loves so well. Brings in the Sears and Roebuck catalog. No, the Bible. Oh, well, that's full of dust, Mother. Oh, you know, that kind of thing, see? Now, this book must be a well-used, well-read book by the ministry. Okay, now when I say it presupposes a thorough understanding of Scripture, you've heard me in the past put down too heavy a positional preaching of the Word of God. There's a reason for this. Each man or woman must have positions that they come to through their reading of the Word of God. But if in this period of transition we get too rigid on those positions, we're going to find out that it's a hindrance of bringing the body of Christ together and our ability to relate to a larger group of people because we're insisting that people immediately come to and accept some particular position that we hold. This always separates the body of Christ and has done it for the last 2,000 years. Ultimately, At least if I understand scripture right, we will come to that place of unity of the faith, as well as maintaining the unity of the spirit. But the Bible always tells us to strive to maintain the unity of the spirit, and then through the work of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and so forth, we will come to the unity of the faith. And that early church apparently did not have total unity of the faith. There was some battle over, was it works and circumcision, how did these things fit, and so forth and so on. And they gradually worked out one after the other, but always there was something else popping up that wasn't exactly sure. I think God is reserving the end time, we're going to see that. But if we're too strong in those positions, then it will tend to separate us from other parts of the body of Christ, which I think we can relate at least in a interaction way a little bit. Ultimately, we're going to come to that place where there is a true unity of the faith. Now, for instance, I'm a Trinitarian. Now, within the ranks of the beliefs of the Trinitarians, and I explained to you, most of you know what that means, but many of you don't. That means we believe, those that are Trinitarian, that there is one God, but that one God exists in the form of three different beings, not aspects, but different beings. That there is God, the Father, who exists. He has always existed. There never was a time when he did not exist. He is neither the Son nor the Spirit, but he is totally unified with the Son and the Spirit. There is a being called the Son. We know him as Jesus. He is not the Father. He is not the Spirit. He has eternally existed with the Father. He has never been created. He eternally existed. Now, it's important to understand some of these things. Because sometimes people make mistakes and they say, Well, God was first, and then Jesus was created, and then the Holy Spirit. And these are wrong concepts altogether. God has existed ever. Now, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead. Now, these are theological terms. You don't find anything in the Bible that says the Godhead or something. Well, it does say that, but under a different guise. The Godhead. The Spirit is not the Son, though it sometimes seems, when you're talking about one or the other, you kind of get them where you're not exactly, well, could the Spirit be the Son, or could the Son be... But if you look at it carefully in Scripture, you see a completely different situation altogether here. Jesus said, I will send the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth will come unto you. I must go to my Father so the Spirit of Truth can come. Ample indications, that's why I'm a Trinitarian. See, I have positions that I take. Now, if, however, I insist that I will talk to no one unless they have exactly that same position, then I might find myself into two very strange predicaments. And here they are. If I meet a person who is a oneness person. Now, Prince, I knew a brother here in the city of Eureka. It was a very fine brother. He's gone now. He's teaching in a Bible school. And I hear lately he's gone back to pastoring again. He was a oneness Brother, And he ministered this little church, a Lighthouse Church out the base of Humboldt Hill here. And this was as fine a brother as you'd ever meet anywhere. He believed in oneness doctrine. But never did I find him argumentative. Never did I find him trying to proselyte anybody. Never did I find him trying to push that off on somebody that was functioning well in another church or group. He simply went out and tried to win people to Jesus Christ and bring them into... Alright, now I say, whereas I do not agree with him in his position, Yet I can function with him, relate to him, talk to him. But you see, if he got real rigid in his position, say, unless you believe this, you are damned to hell forever. And I say anyone that believes that is of the devil and not of God. Well now immediately, that, we don't talk anymore. See? Now that's what I mean about getting so rigid in your position, you can't even talk to another person, or you feel compelled to argue your position at every point. Now a minister must be careful, at least the ones I'm training, that we do not fall into that just at the drop of the hat, we're ready to contend for our position. Now, there are some things that are much more careful that we ought to be contending for. All right. Now, the second point is that a minister must be thoroughly schooled in the principles of Scripture, especially the action principles. Now, could someone define for me what I mean by that? All right. Mark? What are the uh, uh, principles of that word that relate to our our everyday living. Okay. Here on the appearance of the way we should be made, the way we should think, the way we should see, those kinds of things. Alright. And those principles which we've laid down, the bold confession, believe, confess, and act, the faith picture, these are action principles which are essential to the transformation of life. Now, wherever we find these principles not practiced, after a period of time, people simply fall back into informational preaching. Now, informational preaching can be the least life-transforming of all possible types of preaching. You know what informational preaching is? You merely demonstrate how much you know about the Bible. Now, for instance, when I'm preaching on the book of Romans... If I'm not careful, I can simply allow myself to become an expository preacher to merely give commentaries on verses. Verse 1 means this. Verse 2 means this. Verse 3 means this. Verse 4 means this. Informational. Instructional. But not life-transforming. Life-transforming must take the person from where they are and either say... Here is a principle which, if you practice this principle, these things will transform. These things will take place in your life. Do this. I will take you by the hand if necessary, or have someone help you, and... Now, see, God's people must be moved along from one place to another, and it's not enough to merely impart information. What we are imparting are life-changing principles. Remember, the point of a sermon is to do what? Move it to a point of action, get the person to move. Okay. Now, I put here just a little note to myself here to say, in relationship to principle, we must train the people to act on the Word. That's what Don Smith brought out, to practice the Word. Submit to the Word. In other words, when they hear it and say, oh, that's the Word, I will do it. See, that's the point of it, do it. And act out the Word. Now, the act out the Word is important. Because when you act out anything in the beginning, you don't really have it down too well. See, you're kind of, well, I, I don't know how, I, I don't know. See, and it isn't really working in your life in experience, but you act out the Word, and the result is that after a time it becomes a part of your experience. Now, this is the way you do everything in life. See, you have to understand that. How do we learn to write? Now, does a person know how to write when you start to write? No, you don't. You have the idea. Teacher gets on board and says, this is right. Here's an A, here's a B, here's a C, here's a D, here's an E. All right, here's a pen or a pencil. Here's a piece of paper. Now, you do this. All right, now, a child picks up that. See, something you can do very easily today. You put down there, C-A-T-D-O-G. Very simple. But in the beginning, it was not that way. You had to act out that thing. So you take it, and you, D-O-G, see, or whatever way it was, not it comes out looking real funny, it takes a long time to learn to do a very simple thing, but you keep doing it. And the teacher understands, As a matter of fact, the modern ones, I don't know if they do understand that, because a lot of our students, they are having trouble learning to read and write, because they don't make them do it enough times until it's just natural for them to do it. See, for the old ones, we'd have to have what we call writing exercise. So for an hour, we'd write D-O-G, the this, that, and the other thing, this, that, and the other thing, this, that. Then the teacher would say, no, that's not right. Make your loops a little more open. Do this a little more, do that. Now you work on that. Now make O's, do that like that. And then you make A's, and then you do this. And then pretty soon, we're able to write in the acceptable manner. Today, it might be printing or script or some other method. But the point is, without practice, you don't learn to do it. Same thing if you want to learn to type. What must you do if you're going to learn how to type? How about reading a book about it? It's okay. Is that right? You read a book about it. Q W R T Y U I O P 2 and so forth, and where the keyboard is, and here's what you're supposed to do. You put your fingers here. But unless you actually put your fingers on the keyboard and start, you're never going to learn to type no matter how many books you read. Now, many preachers make the mistake of reading books memorizing the material and preaching it, but they themselves have, in fact, never practiced it. Now, have you ever heard this statement, Brother, practice what you preach. Ever heard that? Now, why do you think that statement was developed? Because a lot of people don't practice what they preach. That's why. See, the real word here is practice. Act out in practice what you are taught to do. What I'm saying is, some people fall in the habit of never doing anything other than imparting information. See, it never becomes action-oriented, they never teach the action principles, their whole mentality is merely to impart information. And that's the thing, all of us have to be careful. Now, some of us lean toward that tendency more than others. I can say, if I were left to myself, if I didn't know this clearly in myself, I would tend to fall into the expository preaching type of thing where I would merely instruct and instruct. There's a great fund of scriptural knowledge. I can pull it back any time I need it. But I know that if I do that long enough, I will have a very heady group of people knowing many, many things about scripture, but they will not be action-oriented at all. So I know I must intersperse a great deal of action principles with my impartation of knowledge. See, the two things must be well balanced together, actually leaning heavier on the side of action. Okay. Now, what I hope is that many of you are saying, before we get all done, well, I can't do all that. That's a, 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 a. See, that's what I hope will happen here. See, that we'll begin to see, how am I going to do all that? Right, in fact, very difficult to do all that. And if you think you can do all of that, you'll find yourself in a very difficult position because, in fact, you will not be able to do all of that. You can do it a little bit. Okay, we'll go on. You'll see what I mean as we begin to develop here. Now, must hold up the purpose and the vision. Now, the reason I say must hold up the purpose and the vision, you've heard that many, many times, but if the purpose and vision are ever lost as a divine reality, then what we fall back to as saints is believers in the possible. And the one thing the scripture lays out is we're to be believers in the humanly impossible, but with God, all things are possible. See? But, if we are not lifted up with a vision that lifts us up and out of ourselves, and makes us attempt continually the impossible, see, to believe for the impossible, to trust God, then we fall back to the merely possible. Now let me explain with an illustration. I believe, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime. I believe it will happen in my lifetime, but that, I cannot say, is a foundation of Scripture belief. It's just an inner feeling. Maybe every man of God feels that somehow in my generation, Lord, I'll see all these wonderful, climactic, this great finale. I hope so. If you were to say, Jim, is that based on Scripture that you know you're going to be here to see this? Then I would say to you, no, but I believe that. All right, I'm entitled to my belief, whatever I have this inner witness of the Spirit, and so forth and so on. But if you are to say to me, do you believe the church is going to come together and be one? Say, on the authority of God's word, I tell you it will be. Now, I cannot exactly tell you what that will mean or how that will come about or when it will come about or what the form of it will be, but I can tell you absolutely it will be one. And therefore, if God is saying it is to be one, He's telling me to give myself to the building of that unity. But when I look around in my possible thinking mind, I come to a conclusion. This is impossible. This is insane. Nobody even really wants to be one. Preachers don't want to be one. They want to build their own congregations and keep it intact. and they don't want anybody else going to be the stars and they want I know that syndrome. It's a human natural response. We want to build a safe corral. Now, to make yourself vulnerable to others takes a tremendous force working inside of you to pull you out of the human responses and make you reach out to that which is impossible by human standards. OK? The same thing with being conformed to the image of Christ Now when you think about that Do you believe, Jim That a man can be conformed to the image of Christ? Or that the church can be? Or that anybody can be? Do you? I'm going to say on the authority of God's word We have been predestined To be conformed to the image of God's Son See? Now you say, well do you know that that's going to take place? At, no sir, I don't know that but because I don't know that it isn't, God commands me to give myself too. Bringing that about that Paul said, I strive to present you to Christ, a chaste virgin, without spot and without a wrinkle. He believed it. He aimed for it. He didn't get to see it. But he gave everything he had for it. And one day, we're going to see that. See? Right. Now, to preach the gospel in all the world. Do you really believe that's going to be done? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I believe that's going to be done. See, that pulls me up out of myself. Otherwise, if I didn't believe that. Now, let me show you something. If I did not believe that, if I didn't believe the gospel was going to be preached in all the world, then I would not be interested in sending anybody out anywhere. Nor would I be interested in going anywhere. You know what I would do if I didn't believe that the gospel was going to be preached in all the world, and God was doing a great work in our generation, Here, people, were... guess what I would do? I'd have held up a vision of, let us build a great testimony to the Lord Jesus in Eureka. <laughs> let it hold 5,000 people. Let it be a church that will, when people look at it, they'll know the power of our God in Eureka. That would be the whole central. Stay right in Eureka Post. Don't go anywhere. I want you here because you've got to take care of me. Because That's right. That would be the mentality. See? And that is my natural mentality. That's my natural mentality. To see look oh, at it. This has been... That's my natural mentality. But the vision pulls me up and out of myself and says let those people go. See? Send them out. Okay. Now if I did not believe people were going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ you know what I would do? i get up on Sunday morning and I say There's the Word of God, folks, and many of you want to go by it, you can, but I don't believe you're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, so do as best you can. When you get to heaven, things are going to be okay over there, and okay, I'll see you next Sunday. I'm going fishing this week, see? All right. In other words, I would be reduced again to only thinking of the saints in human terms. There'd be no talk of discipleship, no talk of warfare, no talk of the miraculous, no talk of plunging on into Christ, no talk of the church coming together. Matter of fact, I would not want the church to come together. I would want to keep you very carefully separated of myself so you could hear my particular brand of doctrine and I would tell you watch out for those people over there. that are very dangerous kind of people and don't get near them at all. But it's the purpose and vision which lift me up and out of myself and cause me to act in a way acceptable to the Lord Jesus Christ. See? Now I'm acceptable to him on the basis of my faith but he wants my actions to conform to the Lord Jesus Christ alright what did the Lord Jesus do with his people now what could he have done while he was here on the earth he had him. what could he have done if he had been smart conformed to the Pharisees ok that's one thought but he had thousands of people coming to him what could he have done if he had been shrewd about that alright well Don you answer one alright he yeah. could have started his own handy dandy little call been a pretty good size one wasn't it He'd, he'd have had a money out of his ears. He'd just handled it right. See, he so said, now, what you do is you go to church every Sabbath, you give lip service to the Pharisees, make sure you give enough up offerings so they're happy, then you meet out here for the real church folks. And this is where it's really going on. You just, see, he a, instead of that, what did he do? He not only gave himself, he sent them out. And that was his hope to go into all the world. He said, preach the gospel to every creature. That was his principle. So purpose and vision. You must constantly preach a visionary message and a purposeful message that will lift people out of their natural limitations. Now this must be, should be down on your piece of paper there that you're keeping notes because I'll tell you, you've got to think about this. Otherwise, I say you will simply slip into the idea of preaching the human. That's all you'll preach. If we merely raise up people to be doers of the possible, man, that isn't even as good as a businessman will do. Won't he take on something that lifts him out of himself? Well, sure, he'll attempt some enterprise that he may fail in, he'll attempt it again, he'll attempt it again. Like the fellow built a Kraft Foods company, failed seven times, crashed to the ground, lost everything he had, got up and went at it again, built one of the biggest food companies in the world, Say, attempted that. Now see, when he failed seven times, what should that be a clear message to him if he had any sense at all? What would be very clear about that? Yeah, you're just not a businessman, buddy. That's all. Quit. See? He said, yeah, I'm a businessman. All those times I've just been learning. Now I'm going to really do it. And he gets up and he does it again, see? Okay. Now, second point of the ministry's work is to train and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, the point is to train and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, the normal syndrome of the church is that the minister is the minister. Who's the minister in your church? Oh, brother so-and-so is the minister. Who's the minister here? Oh, the mi- He might be the pastor, or he might be an elder, or he might be an evangelist, or he might be a teacher, or he might but who are the ministers? It should be the people. Train them for the work of the ministry. Now it's interesting. church up in Portland, a Baptist church, on their Sunday bulletin, they have elders listed one, two, three, four, five. Then it says ministers. It's got the whole listing of the church down there. Pretty good sized church. Say, what a number of ministers. Just fantastic. Where are they all? Oh, they're all sitting out right there. See, there's the ministers. Now that's right. There's a, that's a mentality. It's a proper mentality. Now, on the other hand, When we have this group of men, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, elder, in a unique sense, they are ministers. Because the Bible makes that clear. Paul said, I'm a minister to you. So we have a group of ministers to the saints, but we have the saints being prepared to minister as the body of Christ to the world. Important principle to learn. So, to train and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, in order to do this, however, we need various gifts to operate here. There is no way, no way, that any one gift can ever train the people of God for the work of the ministry, only in a very limited little slot, see? All right. Now, so therefore, the gifts that you need are apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, elders. And I want you to see these functions and understand them. Turn with me to Acts 20, please. Now, Paul was moving back toward Jerusalem. Take a gift to the people there. In verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. I want you to look at this work of eldership here and see what it must do. Notice again the word elders is plural. Here again this Speech is very clear that it is not to be single leadership or single ministering to the church. It is to be in a plural fashion. From my leaders he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears. And then he goes on ministering a sermon here. And what he says to them, that he ministered to them the whole counsel of God. Now, verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, that word overseers is one of the words describing eldership. The other word, of course, is the one you're familiar with, eldership. But let's see what an elder or an overseer must do. Now, notice at the beginning, he speaks up here, verse 17, he called the elders down here overseers or bishops. Okay. And he tells them they are to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Right now, that word shepherd indicates the nature of the eldership and what is the nature of that eldership? What is its work from this scripture? They are the shepherd. Right? All right. Now, turn with me, please, to the book of First Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and next one, able to teach. So not only then must an elder be able to shepherd, he must be also able to what? Able to teach. See Now do you notice what's beginning to happen here? We're saying, well, he must shepherd and he must teach. We know from other scriptures he must also evangelize. Right? They see the kind of man you must pick for an elder, he's got a different quality to him, let's say, than an evangelist has. Now, an evangelist can be an elder, but if he is an elder, he must allow himself to be modified by the other gifts in the body, so he is not just evangelistically oriented. Now, there's nothing worse, let's say, in an eldership body than to have it all made up of evangelists. Let's say that you had seven elders in a body and they were all evangelists. Now would say, oh, well, that'd be terrific, wouldn't it? Would not be. Why would it not be? Could somebody tell me why that would not be good. Yes. Well, let's have lady answer here. Mary Jo. It wouldn't be around rounded body. It would be having one of the gifts equipped. Equipping, but you wouldn't be equipped with all the other That's areas right. of ministry. So the saints would not really be equipped for the ministry at all, would they? They'd be equipped for one kind of ministry. And you would find all of the saints dashing out on the streets, constantly witnessing, testifying, saving people. But what would be missing? After you got them saved, what? There'd be no teaching. There'd be no tending, no shepherding. There'd be no apostolic vision imparted to them. There'd be no prophetic insight. There'd be no administration working in the body. It would just simply be this. And what you would find after a short period of time is numbers of people constantly coming in, and what other thing happening too? Equal numbers or greater numbers actually going out all confused and not and that happens anyhow in any church, say. But it happens less and less to the degree that you have the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, all functioning properly on the body, a well-rounded eldership receiving that input, and maybe that apostle, prophet, even being part of that local eldership sometimes, so the input is there, then moving on, coming back, move, that type of thing. And what you develop then is a well-rounded eldership which is able to tend to the flock of God. Okay. Now, see... You then at some point will leave here, and you will go out and you will be an elder in a body, perhaps, or you will be going in there as a mobile brother or sister, and you will be carrying into that body some input. If you're a part of that eldership, some input. Now, if you're constantly insisting on being heard as an elder, I've got this gift and I insist that I should be heard because this is the one we need in the body, drive people crazy. No. We do not need at all times, let me point to myself, we do not need at all times in the body the apostolic gift operating. Sometimes what the people need working on them is the pastoral gift, or they need the teaching gift, or they need the evangelistic gift, or they need the prophetic gift. At all times, the apostolic input must be there, but at all moments, it does not have to be the apostolic gift working, or the prophetic gift, or the... But see, if you're enamored of your gift, whatever your gift is, if you're enamored of it, you insist on that being the input. The next thing, instead of having a well-rounded body, you get just a very narrowly oriented body like this, and the people do not grow. You have to know when to step back and let others come in and begin to minister their particular gifts. Very difficult thing to do if you have preacher's itch, by the way. If you really love to preach, that's very difficult to do. Yes, Harry. Does an individual in my 5 ministry they have that confidence, is it essential that they are elders? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think there are scriptures that would indicate that's not necessarily so at all. Though most of them do essentially find an eldership role in a local body. But many of them, you'd find many evangelists, let's say, that recognize clearly for their office. That are never an elder in a local body in any sense of the word. They see a whole different function for themselves, and that would not be their calling at all. See? Sure. An apostle, a man like himself, would would be essential that he be an elder? I don't think so. Others would disagree with that. Others would disagree with that. But uh, I, I don't think so. See, and as a matter of fact, you'll find a good number would think that Paul was not an elder was not an elder. Now, he may have been, however. An individual is an elder over a local word. Now, if he sees that local worker, then, what does he become? Is he an elder wherever he goes, or just at that local worker, he's ordained. He should be recognized as an elder wherever he goes, in the sense of a man of wisdom or growth or knowledge, but not necessarily, let's say, someone were to go from here to some other city where there was an operating body. Just because he moved in there, he should not say, okay, I'm an elder here and I want to be a part of this eldership and I... That's not necessarily true at all. There may not be any need for him to act in an eldership capacity of that body. However, he's come there, if he's really moving around as a mobile brother, that may be a whole different thing altogether. See, he's not an elder there, but he certainly would have much input there by virtue of his gift. But eldership is a position in the body. It's a ruling position. But let's say a teacher is not necessarily a ruler. An evangelist is not necessarily a ruler. A prophet is not necessarily, nor is a pastor necessarily a ruler. An apostle is a ruler, but not necessarily in the local body. In other words, if he moved in the community, I'm very careful to separate my apostolic function. In Eureka, therefore, I don't even attend the local eldership meetings. See, if I were say, well. Man, I'm an apostle, and not only that, I, you know, I had a part in founding this church, and therefore, when I come here, I'm going to say, now, I really am a local elder here. See, But I'm so careful to separate those functions that therefore I do not, in fact, sit in on the local eldership meeting, although some of the Mobile Brothers do. But I keep away from that. Not that I couldn't add something to it, but I'm afraid I'd add so much to it that, in fact, I would become the local elder here again. So I'm trying to keep that thing separated. To simply create things here and then when we're done, simply move on again. We just simply have an input here at this point and then we move on. That's what I'm saying. Just because they come into a city does not mean they should be like on the staff and especially a part of the local eldership. Because a pastor is a pastor. That's a mobile thing. But he's not necessarily a part of that local eldership. That would depend on the conditions and the situation there. He wouldn't be rejected as a pastor. We don't say, "Oh, you're no pastor," and we don't recognize. Him. But simply, there might not be the functional thing for him there to do, and the reason for that may be that maybe God doesn't really want him there. He really ought to be out getting something else going, but he's temporarily out of the mainstream. So God says, "Okay, rest there a while." See, all right. Now that does not stop him, however, as a pastor, from counseling or befriending or helping or see, he can he act in that function. But we're talking about being a part of the local eldership itself that decision-making body for the local church. See, if he insists on being there, that may be a real difficulty, because he may have no need to be there at all. Okay, so we need these various gifts to operate. That's the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. But I want to show you the elder is a many-faceted kind of body, cannot be made up of just one kind of man. And generally speaking, there can be in that local eldership Mobile eldership as well. Either as a giving it temporary input, long-range input, or actually a part of that local eldership. Now, a question I have to ask you. Can a mobile minister be a local elder? Do we have any example that would show one way or the other about that? Can a mobile minister be a local elder? How about the apostle Peter? Yeah, he was an elder in Jerusalem. He so an apostle. So here's a mobile elder clearly moving around here and there. He said, but I'm also an elder, referring to his work in Jerusalem. I think the eldership is a many-faceted body. It may have in it pastors, maybe part of that local eldership. It may also have apostles. For instance, Jerusalem, part of the eldership were apostles. But in other cases, it may be none of those things. For instance, where Timothy ordained elders in every city. I cannot necessarily think there were apostles as a part of that local eldership and prophets and teachers. Those were young bodies. And they probably had to select who and what they could. They were overseers. Now, the primary idea of elder is older overseer. Now, he is required in his function as overseer. Every elder is required to teach the body. But he may not be a teacher in the sense of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. He's required to shepherd the flock, right? I think he has the capacity, the same as any of the other saints have, but he's older. He has the capacity, the same as any other saint has, to oversee, but he's developed his abilities more by being equipped by pastors. Equipped by teachers, equipped by an apostle, equipped by prophets, equipped by evangelists, where he has those qualities and that understanding, that balance, he brings it into the local body. But this has been a common thing that I've seen. Eldership left to itself pretty soon begins losing its sense of vision. does not have the apostolic vision anymore. begins to pull in on itself. So I think an apostle, the gift is within him. He simply sees that vision. Paul said he was compelled to do what he had to do. I'm not sure eldership always is, or at least the eldership that I've seen. Left to itself, its vision tends to pull in on itself. Now that's a common trait of eldership everywhere, if a man is simply a local elder. Now, if he's an elder who's a teacher, he will not lose the desire to teach, because that gift is within himself, urging him to teach the Word of God. But if he's an elder, he can teach. If he's an elder, he can pastor. But once again, left to himself, he may fall into merely doing administrative things and not be much into shepherding at all. He has to constantly be stirred up to shepherd. See, I think that's why Paul is telling the eldership here, make sure you shepherd the body of Christ. Because left to themselves, they would have... Tended not to do that. Now, the Corinthian church would be another church in point. Left to themselves, he was gone for a long period of time. And those elders completely let the people get completely out of hand. They lost the vision. The people were in turn. They were doing all kinds of weird things to themselves and to other people. Then Paul begins to once again speak and says, this is the way, then they pull right around and they start moving that direction again. Now, I think that's the utter dependency. The mobile ministry cannot carry out the work of training the saints without the eldership. Because that's God's government. The eldership, if it rejects, for instance, Diotrephes, love to have the preeminence, rejected the apostolic, that church twisted off. The eldership cannot maintain itself by itself. I think that's the difference. That elders are not pastors, but they're commanded, like Timothy was, do the work of an evangelist. They're commanded that corporate body to pastor the flock. Okay. Do you understand now... That the work of God to be done of equipping the saints cannot be done by any single man or any single gift or any single body. It must be done by many operations on the saint. It cannot be done alone by anyone. See Now, if you really get that in your spirit, then you will never want to quote, go someplace and be the pastor. Or I want to go someplace and be the anything. What you are want to go someplace and be a part of a team of men and women who are imparting the gifts to the body of Christ. See, it's going to take many to impart that. But the natural tendency, once again I say, left to myself, if I didn't have clear instruction from the Word of God, you know what I would want to do personally? See, and it might be what you would want to do. What would I want to do personally? I'd want to be the pastor of a very successful congregation. That's what I want to be personally. See, see, the purpose of the local elders is to rule the local body. That's his function. To tend it, to teach it, to feed it, and so forth. All right. There may be mixed in, much of the time there is, mixed in with that local eldership are mobile elders who are also local elders. For instance, in Jerusalem, the apostles were part of that local eldership. Yet, when it speaks about the apostles, for instance, when Paul went back to Jerusalem to deal with that issue of circumcision, it says the apostles and the elders. So see, here again, it made a distinction. Here was Peter saying, well, I'm a part of that local eldership. Yet, when it defined them or said who was there, it says the apostles were there and the elders. So now it separated them because these gifts had to be understood were separate, really, even though he was, in fact, a part of this local eldership. James was recognized as an elder. James apparently was in some other functioning relationship, because Peter, when he got out of jail, said, go tell James and the brethren. Well, see, why not just go tell the brethren? No, James, once again, was in a unique functioning position there. So, when you begin to see these things in Scripture, you know there are separations, even though, in a certain sense, they were also overlapping. And that's what we're trying to do. So, you find here, in the bodies that God raised up among us, there are local elderships, which may have no mobile gifts in them at all. Then there are other local elderships, which will have a smattering of mobile gifts, or in some cases, many mobile gifts in that local eldership. But mostly, the mobile merely comes in, is there for a time, maybe as our people get older, they may be there three, four, five years. Some may be there twenty years. But still they'll have a clear mobile function. They may become part of that local eldership, or they may not. It wouldn't make any real difference. As long as they're functioning in their gift. Mobile is a relative term the way I use it. It's not used in Scripture. I merely coined the phrase. It's a relative term. It means relatively more mobile than the local eldership. In the early church, now, this is not the Bible. It doesn't take this position. About a hundred years after apostolic times closed. It was unheard of that a local elder would go from one place of service to another place of service. Local elders were ordained lifetime into that particular function, and that's where they stayed, that's where they grew, that's where they died. You did not put local elders out like the modern practice of churches is. We vote you out. Did not vote elders out. They were ordained into that body. And the only way to get them out is because of sin. Sin was a proper cause. By mobile, I mean apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Some others are saying things like ascension gifts. Uh, maybe that's a good term or whatever term. Many people have tried to coin a phrase, but when you get down to it, you've got apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and then something over here called eldership, of which sometimes these are a part of this. It does not seem they always were. All right, so now you You got this. So mobile elder can be a local elder, but he may not be. A local elder could be a mobile elder. Generally, he is not. But he could be. All right. Now the second thing we need to do remember the point is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Or we need the various gifts to do it. Now, under that heading, we need to help them understand and put into function the family. Because The people of God are going to have to know what it means to relate in a family. See, one of the weaknesses of churches as such is the people don't understand they're a family. Just I'm part of that congregation over there. They say, well, your brother's in trouble. Oh, that's too bad. Sure, too bad. But they don't understand they're part of a family. When one member hurts, we all hurt. See, and that's the principle. Now, no one could say, for instance here, that we practice that perfectly. But it's constantly preached and it's practiced pretty well. So that when some of our people are in trouble, we're there to try and help that person out of the spot that he's in. Either by counsel and advice, sometimes by money according to whatever we have or other... See, that principle is there. You must help them to understand and put into function the family, brotherhood. Now, these are topics within the confines of the purpose and vision that must be preached. They must understand the priesthood. They must understand discipleship. Now, we ministered to the eldership last year at Santa Cruz. I told them that we, as a people, must be people of concept. Now, see, there are certain concepts that Scripture lays out that you must have those concepts. If you don't have those concepts, all you'll be doing is preaching fragmented things and you don't have any full thing to say here is the concept. So you just come up with a scripture and say I preach on this scripture today and I've got something to share in my heart, I'm going to share my heart on this and I've got this idea, I'm going to speak about this today and I'm going to but how does it fit together? What are you talking about? See, so you must understand the concepts of the word of God. So when I use word like the priesthood what are you talking about when you say the priesthood? Is that just an abstract word that has no more meaning than to say priesthood? are all priests to the Most High God. Hallelujah! Oh, wonderful! What does it mean? How are you a priest? What do you do as a priest? What is your function as a priest? What does it mean? What does it mean in the home? What does it mean in the church? What does it mean in the street? What? need to minister those things. Now, obviously, you can see then, we're talking about teaching people over a long period of time, Right? or getting people to come to church a whole lot oftener than they do. See, if you're only going to minister to them like some churches one hour on Sunday morning, you can imagine how long it's going to take to get any of these concepts across to people. You need more time. That's why the ranch is a good place for many people to be. You have many Bible studies, many teachings that go on out there. They need to understand then about these various concepts of family. Needs to be well drilled into them. Of brotherhood, what it means to be a brother since you're in this family what it means to relate to older women as mothers, what it means to treat younger women as sisters with all purity, what it means to have respect and honor for elder men, what it means to treat your brothers as brothers, what it means to take care of the babes, what it means... See, all of these are... Are they not family terms? Are they not brotherhood terms? That's my brother there. That's my sister. There's my mother in the Lord. There's my father in the Lord. There's my... These are family terms. They're terms of brotherhood, all right? Must understand the word discipleship. Must be clearly understood. People have a lot of weird ideas about discipleship and creates a lot of problems, too. All right, now, third point under the training to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We need to help them order their lives aright. Man gets married. One second before you say, I pronounce you man and wife, he was just single man, Right? I pronounce you man and wife, what is he now? He's a husband. Now, because you said I pronounce you man and wife, how much more does he know now about being a husband than he did before you said that? He doesn't know anything about it. He may have learned a little about it from his father. He may have learned a whole lot of funny stuff too. Or he may have learned a little by observing here and there. But he's married a unique woman. Now he's got to learn to be a husband to that woman. Now, there's much that the eldership can do. There's much that the mobile leadership can do. There's much that the saints can do to teach him how to walk aright with his wife and the wife to walk with her husband. I thank God for the interchanges that have taken place here. You know, I thank God for the fact that our marriages have hung together. Very little separation. Once in a while, very little. You know why? Because even though we're walking imperfectly with each other, I mean, husbands don't, they're not walking perfectly as husbands. Wives don't walk perfectly as wives in this ministry. But they walk pretty good. Pretty good. And basically, I see those marriages coming better and better together. We're beginning to walk and function with each other in a better and better way. We've got to teach that. That can be learned, and if it isn't taught... It won't be learned, except one out of a thousand might learn, and all the rest start, same syndrome, start breaking up and getting divorces. Okay, we need to teach family life. We need to teach finances. I talk a lot about money. You know why I talk a lot about money? It's a big problem for most people. matter of fact, it invades all of their life, messes up their love life, messes up their family life, messes up their conversation, just messes everything up. But if you got your finances straightened out, guess how much it comes up? Hardly at all. So there's nothing to talk about. Not in that area. you got better things to talk about, right? Except you sit down and say, Man, isn't it beautiful how God's helped us work out all our financial problems? Isn't that terrific? Oh, praise God. That's the end of that conversation. Go on. But now, if it isn't right, Oh, man, money. I have money. I have money. I have you. And then if you're not careful, you start accusing each other, You know, get out of here and get me some money too. and That kind of stuff. And that, you know, next thing Breaking up. All right, finances. Very important part to understand that. Business principle is a very important thing to understand that. I like people to understand. That's why we're preaching on the book of Proverbs. I don't like you to be naive too long. Be naive until you're able to get money. As soon as you're able to get money, don't be naive anymore. And then the moral foundations of our life need to be very solidly understood. Why we should be moral. Tell me something. How would you go about teaching we should not commit adultery? Oh, well, yes, that's very good. Example and precept, very important. But think about it for a minute. How would you do it? See, what is the moral foundation for not doing it? Why is it right to be moral? How would you get it deep down inside of a person? This kind of action is not for me, because that's wrong. That can never produce anything but ruin, not for me. See, that's what needs to be down deep in the heart of our people. Keeps them safe. Otherwise, if that isn't there, we're going to keep falling into one problem after another. Moral foundations need to be deep in their life. Third, this is the third heading. We need to create the atmosphere that allows creativeness, personal growth, and ministry expansion. This will not come about without thought. We need to create the atmosphere that allows creativeness is also going to allow trouble, too. Personal growth, ministry expansion. All of those things are trouble words. We must be thinking ahead and open to the Spirit to discern where the body is the head. For instance, right now, much talk on my heart about broad-based ministry. Much talk in my heart, that's why I'm here in Eureka. Say, let's establish the church in the home. Let's experiment with this idea and that idea and some other idea. Let us... see. Now, why are we doing that? Because I feel inevitably the body is heading somewhere. Three years ago, I said, let the people move out of communal houses. If they feel that they've learned what they can learn there and they really want to be on their own... Let them do that. See, now, that wasn't heard right away. Well, that's a natural thing because it's not easy to hear. If you've got something working fairly well, and somebody proposes something that you do not understand, what are you liable to do? What's a very natural tendency? And here, therefore, as a minister, you've got to guard yourself against this. Yes, even more than that, you resist it. Because you're frightened of it. See here, you got something working pretty good, right? All right, now let's look at. You got a pretty good congregation here, and somebody says, "Let these people go. God will send you more." Say, so, "I don't know." See, if you didn't really believe that, you would not want to do that, would you? Somebody said, "You wouldn't want to do that." All right, now same situation. You got communal houses; they're all working. You got the finances. Oh, you know, you have your problems and your troubles. Now somebody says, "Well, but all the ones that earn good money—they're the ones that want to move out on their own, and then they will." Uh, what will happen to the ministry? Well, what will happen to the ministry? Just grow. But you will, as they move out, see, you will go through some periods of adjustment and thought and processing and having to say, huh, 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 But what is the result of when that's all over? The ministry has expanded, taken on new horizons, and you yourself have grown as a result of it. You have now taken on a broader ability to look at things. All right. So now you hear me talk about broad-based ministry. Now, that wasn't my idea. Someone gave it to me. It was in my heart to do it, but that terminology came from another place altogether. So, we create the atmosphere that allows for creativeness, personal growth, ministry, expansion. We must be thinking ahead and open to the Spirit. So, the eldership, the mobile ministry, must be observing as they go to another ministry. Let's say a minister, look for what you see there. What do you see happening in a body? See, whenever I go anyplace, I say, what are you finding that's working as far as winning souls? What are you finding that's helping in the growth of the church? What are you finding in areas of worship? What are you finding in areas of, and we say, oh man, we're doing this new thing. It's really working. So I'd like to hear about that. So I'm always wanting to feed information into myself to be able to take that to the rest of the body and let that be ministered to. We just had some brothers recently go, our brother Steve Schrader and brother Bill Leroy on a trip. And we're going to. Some of those things are already being introduced, but more. We want a whole group of churches to observe their worship service practices. What are you doing in worship? Some churches are extremely good in worship, although the things that are happening here are very beautiful, too. But if we can learn something to add to that, what do we want to do? We want to take that and bring that back here. So we're constantly saying, Spirit of the Living God, where are you taking this group of people called Gospel Outreach? Where are you moving us to? See? Now, I was ready to go back either to L.A. or to go to the East Coast and establish a new ministry. Here again, the same situation. Because I began to look at what was happening with this minister's group here. I felt very important to stay here and work with this situation until we either saw one way or the other. He's going to do something or do nothing. Now, the thing is beginning to grow and develop, and there's a, a richness of... Now, I think the whole body in Humboldt County is moving toward, at least in this one county, moving toward a unity of the Spirit that maybe is not seen too many other places. There's a real heart growth of people coming here. See, what constantly my heart has to open up to, where is God moving the body? And then once I see that, that's the word overseer, isn't it? What is an overseer? So a person stands up a little higher than the rest. Now he's not bigger or higher in that sense of hierarchically higher, but he's able to look and he's able to see, and if he can oversee the body, he's able also to do this. He says, oh, I see down the road there. We better get ready for. Her. And so he's planning ahead. So when the body gets there, the atmosphere is right for that. That's going to be your work. Must be thinking ahead. Must remain, however, under covering and direction. Very great tendency for a person to get very proud of the work that they're doing locally and say, hey, wait a minute, this is my work. Of course, not our work. Any more than this is my work. Say, this is my work. No, it's not my work. It's God's work. Okay. Must set by example and precept. Must maintain a standard for the people. Now, I'll just pass along a little information to you. Your people will always amplify your poor example and will, with difficulty, follow your good example. The reason is it's always hard to follow a good example, isn't it? See, you, you admire it, you love it. They say, man, how can I do that? But if you keep setting a good example, they'll come along and they'll they'll follow that good. But they do it with difficulty. It's hard. And they keep falling and getting up and falling and getting up and falling and getting... You must never get weary and all blown. Oh, those guys. Never get that attitude. There's no those guys. It's all of us together. We're one body, one family, and we're moving on in the Lord. Could someone tell me what you think happened in Corinthians? Here was a church that Paul founded, built, ordained elders, trained them, set them into the ministry, and then he went away. It was gone for a long, long period of time. I imagine it had some communication, but must not have had too much. Either the press of duties or letters got lost and so forth. But the point that I'm making here is that that could not have gotten in that condition unless the eldership let it get there. There's never. You are not going to find except in the very last days when people will of a certainty not hear sound doctrine. Now, the time is going to come when people will not hear sound As I mentioned, the last days are going to take place. And they will reject it. And they will heap to themselves, teachers, because they have itching ears, be turned away from the truth and be turned on the fables. But I'm going to tell you about the people of God. An elder must believe this. Though he himself is a sheep, yet he acts in a shepherding role. A mobile minister must believe this, though he himself is a sheep and a brother, yet he has a gift. And if he exercises that gift and sets example by precept and by teaching, the people of God will follow that teaching ever more closely. Now, that I can tell you, sure. But if there is major inconsistency, now, I didn't want to say any inconsistency. I find inconsistencies in my life. But they are not major inconsistencies. I have a right attitude toward the people of God that rarely ever gets in a sour place. And if it does, all I have to do is get away and pray for a little bit and I'm right back on track again. I mean, there's nothing in my heart that has anything but a good attitude toward the people of God. If you have a good attitude toward the people of God, if they're not a burden and a pain in the neck to you, like one pastor told me years ago, and it really affected my ministry. He said, when you're standing up there on Sunday morning preaching to that bunch of rebels, now, see, that was his attitude toward the people of God. And guess what he had in his church? They a bunch of rebels. That's right. They, now, in fact, they were not rebels. They were really sheep trying to do what? Trying to do what he told him to do. He looking at me—a bunch of rebels. I said, oh, you bunch of rebels! Okay, we're going to be rebels." They—they're trying to—you know—he should have patted them on the back for being such good rebels. Say, "Man, you're really doing what I'm telling you to do." See? "But if you minister the truth that they're sheep, their brothers and sisters, their mothers and fathers, their friends, their God's sons, their—see—you begin to minister those faith pictures." you can be assured that that's exactly what God's people are going to do. See, if you tell them you know that they're generous because God is in them and God is a generous God and there, you'll find they'll be generous people. But if you sit up there and preach, you people are a bunch of niggardly, stingy, selfish, you just get up there and tell God's people stuff like that and see what begins to happen. Now, second thing, if there are inconsistencies that are major inconsistencies in your behavior, it will be amplified. If you yourself are essentially stingy, Then, no matter how you try to avoid having a stingy congregation, you will end up with a stingy congregation. See, that's why I always try to take care of a man of God when he comes by. Way back years ago in the Assemblies of God, I remember we said that an evangelist should have at least $75 a week. If he comes, you know, minimum. I said, now it's back when 75 would have been much more, you know, like today, 75 a week. couldn't even get out of town hardly on it. But uh, in those days, 75, we, that was a minimum. If they went over 100, 200, 300, fine, praise God. But that was a minimum. If a man came, if the offerings were very low, the church would make it up to that. And, man, I remember we went through a big thing about that. Man, it seems to me we're saying they ought to live pretty high on the hog. And, man, there's some of us that aren't making that much of them. And I said, listen, if we don't take care of the men of God as they come through here, God is not going to take care of us. Now, somehow I understood that principle. And I can tell you I've never had a stingy congregation. People are always generous with me. Everywhere I go, I say, here's money, brother. Here's an offering, brother. Here's this. brother. Man, Let's take you out. Let's do this. Let's, because I have a generous spirit. Now, on the other hand, if I have a niggardly spirit, a stingy spirit, then you can be sure that that will reflect itself in the congregation of people themselves. If, let's say, the elder's wife is not careful with her dress, whatever she does, the women in that congregation will do ten times over. You can be sure of that. See. So, an elder and his wife, a mobile minister and his wife, must be a team together thinking, look, how does our look affect... The congregation. How does our speech affect the congregation? How is what we're saying, how does it affect the congregation? Now, wrong dress can be an example. The use of wrong beverages. i warned you about drinking alcoholic beverages. A nation of drunkards keep away from all things. Alcoholic is not a thing to do. And attendance at the wrong places. Over an arcade of the day. Needed to go to a restroom. And uh, couldn't find a place, past several bars. Or I might say, oh well, I just go in a bar, I'm not going there for anything. Better watch out, walk in that bar. I didn't go, I walked way down a I mean it was a, a temptation to stop. I found a gas station several blocks away, just right in the middle of the arcade and had to keep walking. Now I'd rather do that though, I'm gonna tell you, than walk into a bar, through the bar, because someone might turn around there and say, oh hi there Reverend! Come on, sit here. I'll buy you a Coke, Reverend, or you want something stronger. See? No, I say, oh, I'm only here for... Yeah, sure, Reverend, sure, yeah. Uh-huh. Don't do that. What does the Bible say to do? Shun the appearance of evil. Right, shun it, see? Because whatever you do, it's going to be reflected many times over. Now, I have a brother that I have to contend with on many, many occasions. He's not around now. Maybe we will be again someday. And he said, he didn't see anything wrong going to the bar and having a glass of beer that he wasn't going there to get drunk. I said, man, there is all kinds of things wrong going into a bar to get a glass of beer. In the first place, that's not where you should be. You're not in there to preach the gospel. In the second place, if you're sitting down drinking a glass of beer with those people, you have no witness or testimony to them anyhow. If a Christian goes by and sees you, your testimony is all shot with them. That's not the place to be. Never could understand that. So a couple times he'd go and get some beer. And he said he had a limit of two glasses. Two glasses he drank, three glasses he started getting drunk. Somehow, on several occasions, he always forgot how to count. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And finally, ah, like this. One time they threw him out in the street in Eureka. Threw him out in the street. Now, tell me, you got an argument that that's Okay. See, I can show you in Scripture that it's not wrong to have a glass of wine. I can show you in Scripture that... When that guy got thrown out in the street, tell me how good his arguments were as far as his witness. Anybody knew what happened. Virtually no good at all. See, keep yourself free of those kind of entanglements. Okay. Yes? Um, I heard of people like going into bars and witnessing and stuff. Could you just say something about that? Very critical. See, the old Salvation Army people were pretty smart. They went in in a group with uniforms on, playing the tambourine, and saying, praise the Lord. So anybody seeing them go in, they knew what happened on the inside. Man, a riot rioted there. <laughs> but you go in in your civilian uniform. Say, just walking in there, and you're standing there and saying, well, I'm here to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know. Not a good thing to do. So you've got to be careful of this, especially eldership or the mobile ministry. It just is a really serious thing. You've got to watch those types of things. See, if you want to witness, just stand outside the bar. Everyone's in there going to come out sooner or later. Catch them coming out the door. You know, okay. Tenants are the wrong places, use of wrong beverages, wrong dress, whatever thing like that. All right. This is Radiance Tape Number LT3E. A message by Jim Durkin entitled, A General Overview of a Minister's Work, Part 2. Next heading, Ministry must instruct and reprove on a personalized basis. This can be very unpleasant. Sometimes the pulpit is called the Coward's Castle. Can anybody guess why it is? its has got real bull behind the pulpit. That's right. But we have to deal with a person face to face And say brother And you have to level with them. You have to provoke a crisis Many times we've had to do that Never have I found it easy I have never And I hope I never do find it easy See if I find it easy I say that dirty so and so I'm going to go down there and give him a piece of my mind See it's real easy for me to do it Then I'm in the wrong frame of mind I better cool off and get in the right spirit now, when I'm in the right spirit, I don't want to do that. I'd much rather stand behind this pulpit and say, And there are people in this congregation who have... See, fact because I don't have to look at anybody, you know. Who said a preacher? And his constant testimony was, And, this is the way I feel about it, see. And he's standing there and looking at the wall like this, you he, he know. Like, hey, where's that guy up there? He's up there somewhere, you know, see. You no. Know. <laughs> you've got to personally reprove and instruct correct, rebuke see never pleasant but in the long run highly satisfactory results you will have people get offended at you tell you you're on this, that and the other thing but in the long run I remember many times I use a little statement like this it's a statement I found effective but I think I found it effective because I believe it I said to a person I sometimes had to correct, like this. I want to make this clear to you, brother or sister, that if you go to a different church, or a different minister, or a different party, you can get somebody to agree with you. Maybe you get a lot of people to agree with you. But what I'm telling you is the truth. Somewhere down the line when you find it, when this thing comes the fruit that you're now doing, and it messes up your life to whatever degree God determines is going to mess it up. I want there to be one person in your life, and I want you to remember my name, Jim Durkin, that I stood up and told you this is wrong, and it's not of God, and you ought to stop it, and you better stop it now. I've had that tremendously affected with people. They said, well, man, I want somebody to be a friend to me like that. So, well, that's the kind of friend I am. But I can't be a friend if I don't speak the truth. See? And on the other hand, it's not the same thing to come in and say, "You dummy, you better wise up and you better see that's not the kind that, when we're talking about reproving or rebuking, it's got to be done with a heart that reaches out and takes hold of that person and makes it clear that you believe this with all your heart and you want that person to hear you that you stood up and you told him see? Because in fact what it really boils down to is simply this: I know from my point of view that I'm going to answer, for instance like what I'm ministering here tonight. You know, I was watching a little while. You notice my voice has dropped down quite a bit now. Can any of you tell why I did that? Yeah, i right, Don. done. That's right, I was losing people. You know why I was doing it? I was kind of preaching it, high point. I was watching people start to... <laughs> See, All Right now, I know that I'm going to give a count of this night to the Lord. So I pick that up and I say, all right. Now you back off and you you bring that down where you're talking to them. You're pulling them into what you're saying because you want them to hear this. You do not want to train them and say, after a year, okay, now you're trained, train, go out there. They don't remember anything you said at all. See? Now you learn some of these things. And that's what I'm saying. You watch that congregation. You're constantly watching it. And when you see you're starting to lose them, there'll be something going around inside of your head saying, why am I losing that attention? What's? Missing. What am I not doing? See? And then you adjust yourself to that particular situation. Sometimes it takes tremendous loud preaching. Other times, better drop down, get very intimate, and pull those people back into what you're doing. Okay. See, now right now, you're learning to become a minister. I'm talking about the man that is in the ministry. But even as a saint, you've got to be careful that you don't truly compromise your testimony. Take my own position, Princess. I'm known by a fairly large people, saved and unsaved in this community. All right, I've got to be extremely careful where I go, under what conditions I'm seen in those places, or where I'm seen, like even a restaurant. Many times I weigh very carefully if that bar is in exact proximity to the restaurant, I will avoid that place. I don't avoid it because that tempts me. I have no temptation to go in there and get drunk, but I have to be very careful about that let someone come in and see and report that they saw me see the ministry is too important to get myself in that position so I'd just rather simply avoid it now most of these situations if you think your way through you can find an acceptable method of doing it but if you find you cannot then believe me it's far better just to pass the thing up trust God to give you work someplace else and that'll mean the need in your life. You know. It's not always easy to be a Christian. I'll tell you that. A bar is not generally like an eating place. You would not have found the Lord, let's say, going into a local brothel. Because he wanted to go in there and witness. He would not have been in there. It would not have been a place for him to be. When he did meet a harlot, he met her right out in the open by the well. Very careful that he was nice, public. And even then his disciples why is he talking with her? They know who she was. See Well, it's out in the open, so okay. See, but now let's say he'd have been meeting with her for a cozy little dinner at ten o'clock at night in her apartment. Now I'm gonna tell you he could have said, Well, I was just eating with a public in the sinner. He'd have had a hard time trying to explain that one to anybody. See, and that's why Paul says shun the appearance of me. See, now he did it in a place that was acceptable. Sure, he ministered to those people. And he could eat now with publicans and sinners. In other words, he came into their house and ate with them in a family situation. But he didn't get himself in a compromise situation. And that's the thing you're going to have to watch, see. Don't get yourself in a compromise situation. I think that's a principle relatively easy to understand. It's not a complex principle. You just have to apply it in each situation. And sometimes you're under pressure because of the nature of work or the nature of the situation or the nature of, like, uh, why don't you meet me at so-and-so? It's easy enough to say, it's not easy for me to eat in a place like that. The smell of alcohol bothers me. Could we meet at a sizzler? Very simple, just to turn it around completely and handle it in a very very simple way. But if you want to eat with an unsaved person, man, nothing wrong with that at all. I have, you know, in my lifetime, many, many unsaved people sat down and eat. Sometimes there's a business situation where I didn't get the witness. Much of the time, though, I made sure I got a good chance to witness. But nothing wrong with eating with them. but be careful where you eat with them. See, that could put a whole different light on things. Okay. Ministry must set the example for forgiveness. We cannot be holders of grudges. Now, A minister in the normal course of his ministry development, if he's not careful, can become a very sensitive individual that is sensitive to criticism. He gets criticism all the time, and because he gets criticism all the time he starts getting very gun shy of it, and he can get offended very easily. Now you must constantly train yourself not to get offended. You cannot afford to go around with your feelings on your sleeve, taking everything personal that comes your way. You cannot afford to get offended. Occasionally you will get offended if you do get it out of your system. Because that person may come back the next day, and I'm going to give you the words of our Lord Jesus. That person may come back the next day and say, I'm sorry. Now you've got one or two things to do. Say, I'll say you're sorry, fellow, you're going to be sorry for a good long time, too, because you're going to pay for what you think. When he says, I'm sorry, there's one thing a minister must do. What's that? Forgive it, and then do your best to forget it. Get it out of your mind. You got better things to do, and you got to train yourself. Neither to let the sun go down on your wrath. You cannot afford to go to bed angry. You must set that example for the people. They must see it and understand it. Must be a an emotional person, but not emotionally controlled. You must be a placid individual in the sense of being able to forgive and forget and let those things just run out. You can't the aggravations. You can't afford to keep those in yourself. You cannot. Be a holder of grudges. You must be willing to run the risk again and again of being tricked. Your confidence must be in God. Now Jesus gave us a clear example of this when he said, if a man comes to you and he sins against you, and then comes into you and says, I repent, what should you do? Well, let me ask you a question now. He said, I repent. How do you know it wasn't a trick? The fact is, you don't. That's right. You don't know. But what are you supposed to do? Forgive him. Then he does it to you again. Says, I repent. What are you supposed to do? What? To seven times, what? Seventy times seven. Okay? Now, see, what he's saying is our spirits have to be willing to let that stuff run out so we don't hold grudges. Now, it is not dependent upon whether, matter of fact, I was just dealing with a particular situation tonight, and... The man asked me a question. He said, well, should I not pursue this to make sure the person has truly and truly repented toward me? I said, no, you cannot know that. You cannot know that. And if you start inquiring into that too deeply, you're going to find yourself getting into funny, funny, funny areas. You've got to prove your repentance to me. You're going to really have to show me. I demand. See, if you press that too hard, get some really weird stuff. Now, exception to that. You must be firm to protect the sheep. You must not hold personal grudges, but let's say this man has come into the body and taught seriously false doctrine, and then ripped a couple of people off. And those people are off and who knows where. And the man comes back and says, I repent, let me back in the body. Now you have a different thing. Now you have to weigh carefully where that person is. And in many cases you're better off to say, Friend, you were warned many, many times to stop what you were doing. And you've damaged those people out there. Now, I'm sure there's other bodies where you can fit, but it's probably best you don't come back here. No, cannot come back here. Move on. I would weigh the danger to the sheep. If this man has ripped the sheep off, let's say Joe Smith, and he had taught serious false doctrine, or he had committed fornication or adultery and took away a sister or two with him or something of this damaging the sheep, now I would be extremely careful. Now if a person comes back, not a damager of the sheep, just a bad witness and damaging himself and messed up and, alright, says he repents, can I come to church, brother, can I? Certainly. Move into a house, weigh that one very carefully. Make it on his own and come to church, amen. See. But once again, a damager of the sheep, not move into his house or any place I'll say I'm sorry you've done this you were warned now it's better that you find peace in another body there are many good bodies but not for here I can run the risk of damage to myself but if I'm set as an overseer in the body I cannot run the risk of damage to the sheep now sometimes different other ones are stolen from us that's not a damage to the sheep follow what I mean? that's part of the risk we run being Christians Okay, I say it's when they damage the souls of the sheep. Some people came here the first time, said that he would not teach his position. Stayed with him a while. The next thing, he is teaching it. Spoke to him about it, and I feel I have to teach him as God. Well, then I said, in that case, you better find a place where that's taught. He teach that. You know, I mean, you go there, there a place that teach that. go will find them and see if you'll receive there so he went away then when he come back here he said I'm going to proselyte I'm here to proselyte And I'm now he has ripped off a couple three people now if he should come back and say man I repent I see the light I say I forgive you brother don't come here so he said oh brother shouldn't we run a risk no sir because usually the man who's saying that I or shouldn't we run a risk he knows he's not going to get disturbed it's the babes I'm concerned with it's the weak and the unstable that I'm so or, no, I was so the Lord. no cannot come back here now that's saying, are you not forgiving? I'm forgiving. Well, we got a different situation where the risk is toward the sheep. I'm set here as an overseer also, as well as just a brother. See, a brother offended, I forgive. Overseer, I want to move among your sheep and I want to, see, just a minute. No. Okay. The Bible makes it very clear that the unsaved person be pleased to live with the saved wife. Live with them. It's only when he becomes so abusive that your life is in danger. You do not have to submit to him killing you, or her killing you, whatever the case may be. In that case, you can then protect yourself by moving away. But Scripture is very clear. If the wife departs from her husband, let her not be married again, but rather let her be reconciled to her husband. We're thinking about well, a woman is in the ministry, should she not be protected from this husband? No. If that husband is offering... A sound, reasonably stable home, even though he himself is not perfect, nor is even a Christian, I would always be on the side of saying, get them back together. But if the woman did not want to go back together, then I would say that's okay, she can live in the ministry. But I would encourage them always coming back together. See, but the Bible does say the woman could leave her husband, but she must not get remarried, but rather, so our whole emphasis then would be to try to get the marriage back together but not force it back together. See, now that's the problem you've got. Now, the man wants to come back in the ministry, the question you're asking yourself is, when you say in the ministry, do you mean able to flow with the congregation and come to the meetings and meet the brothers, or do you mean move into a communal house? Now, if you mean move into a communal house, that may be a different thing. You just may not be suitable to do that. And therefore, we might say, no. No, we cannot permit that. So you just, you don't fit well in a communal house, and therefore, no. But in the ministry is the broader sense of can he flow in fellowship with the brethren? Well, of course, if he repents, he can do that unless he's damaged the sheep. See, that type of thing. Okay. You'll run into that more than you wish. Personally, we must run the risk again and again of being tricked. Your confidence must be in God, but you must be firm to protect the sheep. Now point number six, new heading. We must not fall into permanent role-playing of any kind. If we get fond of calling ourselves something, watch out, you're falling into permanent role-playing. If you like to refer to yourself on practically every occasion, you know I'm an apostle, watch out. The word primarily that should be on your mind, though you may not speak it all the time. The word primarily that should be on your mind is, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, this is a part of the family, or I'm a part of the family. See, that should be your basic mentality. You should think of yourself from time to time as a sheep, and I sometimes do. I don't do it as often as I used to, but sometimes I need to do it. I have to think of myself, see, I'm so in the position of making decisions. Sheep do not make very many decisions. They basically go with a shepherd. Here's the grass. Oh, grass. I eat grass. See? Here's water. Oh, water. I drink water. Here's the sheepfold. Oh, I go in the sheepfold. I lay down. I mean, that's basically the life of a sheep. He's really not into making very many decisions about life itself. All right, now, but when I get in a position of making decisions, then if I'm not careful, I begin to refer to myself as, I'm a decision maker, brother. I'm an... See, and I begin to fall into a permanent role of thinking of myself as the... And I forget that I'm also a sheep. And as a sheep, I just need to sometimes get down and say, Bah, 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 yes Lord, we're... Bah, bah, and just walk and do what the Lord wants me to do. Don't, don't get into that. See, I have to constantly keep thinking about, I have to say of myself, I'm a brother. Now, if I'm not careful, I'll say this. Well, of course I'm a Brother. I'm an apostle brother. <laughs> and I begin to get, constantly want to pull myself back in my role. But that's just a little part of my life. My whole life is, I many things. Now, not only must you not get permanently cast into a role, you must not let your people, they normally will fall into one role or another. See, normally the people of God are not by nature created. If you've been called to minister, God has taken you from whatever position you were in, and he's begun to expand you somewhat, so you begin to see yourself in, as a different thing. Now, your natural tendency is the flow to something though you want to be. It's different from what you were when you were down here, but now you're up here and you're beginning to refer to yourself in this role. Not to let yourself do this. You must retain all of these roles that are part of the whole church. They're part of yours. But the people of God, when they come in, depending on what particular thing that you're on, they will hear something that kind of fits in with their natural personality. If their natural personality, their natural, in other words, their worldly personality, is warlike, and you preach, brothers, we are soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ. That personal, I'm a soldier, brother. And he'll, that's going to be his role. Then another person, he's kind of a placid, docile person. He's not into making decisions. You preach, we're all the sheep of God's passion. I'm a sheep. (laughs) That's what he'll be. See? Now, you've got to say, no, you are not just a sheep. Yes, I am. No, you are not your soldier. Oh, not me, man. I'm a sheep. Another one, this warrior, man. I'm a warrior, brother, a soldier of the cross. Yes, but brother... We're in the sheepfold now. Would you put down your sword, take off your armor, sit here Would you? I tell you, there's going to be... See, me busting people up like this. You've got to get them out of that role. You've got to expand them so they are a brother, they are shepherding people, they are warriors, they are... See, all of the various things, it's your constant ability to expand them into all of those roles that's constantly being called on. You must do that for the people of God. Do not let them fall into a permanent role. Yes, I've got sheep, soldier, priest, brother, disciple, saint. That's our work. Now, point number seven. We must do as much of the work of other gifts as possible when none are available. This means we must submit to the gifts. You must act apostolically toward the people. You must act prophetically toward the people. That's why the Bible says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. See, you can't necessarily say, I have this revelation of the future, if you don't have it. That's an aspect of the office of a prophet. But the primary work of the prophet is to instill that powerful testimony of Jesus. as just an inspiring... See, the Bible says the apostles, when they got ready to go back, the apostles who were in Jerusalem got ready to go back to Antioch, the church that was at Jerusalem sent up with Paul and Barnabas Isn't it interesting they didn't send any of the apostles up? Did that ever interest you? Wouldn't it have been the most clear thing for them? They had, you know, 12 men there that were given the apostolic title, and maybe by that time they had a few more, I don't know, although Jerusalem, I think, probably they did have 12 there, the Israelites. But they could have sent Peter up, perhaps, or James, or certainly some of the lesser-known apostles, they could have sent them up and say... Here's people who walk with the Lord. Oh, here's the apostle actually walk with the Lord. What, what is your judgment on this? Here's the judgment that we have given. You can trust it. They don't do that. They send prophets up. And it says these prophets read that letter and then preached a lengthy sermon and mightily confirmed the brethren. Well, that's the work, see. Now, it's better if you have a prophet around to do that work. But what happens if you don't have a prophet? Well, I mean, you better be in the business of confirming the brethren. <laughs> that's the prophetic aspect, see. Okay. Apostolically, prophetically, teaching-wise, pastorally, evangelistically, that must be the work of the ministry. So then, tell me, do you think it is necessary for me then to act in a pastoral role at times? I can tell you this. i tell you, I'm no pastor. But many times I'm doing the work of a pastor. And I'm not too bad at it. Now, why am I not too bad at it? I worked at it a long, long time. I worked at it hard, and I thought about it. See, when I teach, I don't teach as well as some who are teachers, but I get the point across, and that's what I'm trying to do. Say, evangelistically, don't do too bad. When I got a bunch of sinners out there. Something normally takes hold of me, and something starts happening. So you say, oh well, how'd you learn to do that? The word is, I learned to do it. I studied it. I thought, what makes a good evangelistic sermon? What's the basis of teaching? What's the prophetic mind? Although I have been a prophet. What is the apostolic mind? What does it mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to be an elder? How does an elder work? How does an elder act? See, I'm thinking these are concepts that you need to get in your mind. And you need to act upon those concepts. Alright. Now, however, never let it get in your mind that if you are not those things because you can do the work in a limited way, you do not need those gifts nothing would be a greater error than to think well I act toward my people apostolically therefore I don't need an apostle not so you do need the apostle and of course Corinthians amply demonstrates that and so do the other churches they constantly needed that input of the apostolic, the prophetic, the teaching mind now the ministry must demonstrate its submission to authority and support the authority over and under it this is going to be something you need to hear But I hope you can absorb it at this state in your growth. And I put here this point, it produces peace in the household of God. Now, I have taught elders, I told Brother Tom Kennedy, it's something he's never forgotten, he's practiced, and because he's practiced it, his authority is firmly and well established in New York. When I sent him down to Mendocino, he was just raised up to be a young elder. I think he was the first elder we ordained, or maybe the second. I don't exactly remember now. Sent him down to Mendocino, and that was a area that no authority had been established of any kind. They were ready to accept him as an elder, but they didn't know what that meant. And they just, man, when he went down there, was really riotous for a time, because they didn't understand what was, you know, an elder, what's this, and who's this, and we've got this to say, and we feel this, and here's our counsel, and we, you know, went on like this. So I had to go down there and minister his authority. And I told Tom, I said, Tom, do not, outside of just simply stating that you're an elder sent from God, and you've been raised up by God and properly ordained, do not spend any time trying to prove your authority at all. You spend time ministering the authority that God has given me as an apostle. That's all you have to do. Then you let me come down at the proper time and minister the authority that God has given you. And that's the whole principle we use to establish authority in Mendocino. Now it took time, but after a little bit, that authority was heard. See, many times a preacher says, I'm the preacher here! Making a great mistake. Great mistake. You get into contention with a person. It becomes an argumentative thing. I'm in charge here. Well, I don't know if you are or not. See, it's boom, 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 and you get into this kind of a thing, see. But say, I want to tell you that I know a man who is an apostle. I said, "Oh, do you? Tell us about him." And he says, "Oh, wow, fantastic! Think he'd ever come down here? Oh, yeah, he's coming here next week. You know? Oh, wow, that's terrific! Okay, this man comes out. Boy, tell us." So he preaches a sermon or two, and then along the way he says, "I want to point out this man to you, who has been tried under fire, a man who has proven to be to be compassionate, a man who truly is an elder." I've laid hands on him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I've sent him down to you to be your elder, submit to him. And believe me, that was, oh, well, yes, I, uh, see, and, now, if that principle is maintained in practice, you've got to practice it. If that is practiced, there is peace in the body of Christ. If that principle is not maintained, let's say the man who's trying to establish his own authority, and he thinks the way to establish it is not to establish the authority that God has set over him. He will find pretty soon that there will be no authority that he has to work with that body. He just simply will dissipate itself and he will have nothing. The only basis he will have is some light like kind of friendship that if he happens to argue them into some point or he happens to have the best ideas, they may go along with it or they may not go along with it the next thing the whole body is tearing apart or drops simply into a democratic voting type of organization. But if he maintains the authority which God has set over him, and that authority which God has set over him maintains his authority, the people of God are say, praise God, good, amen. No problems with that. It's a principle you've got to learn, you must practice it without fail. If you fail, to the extent you fail, to that extent you will create dissension and disturbances in the body. I could say, and it's true too, to the extent that you don't practice it, you will weaken your own authority. But that's not the point. The only point of authority functioning is for the sake of the body. And the body needs it to have peace and flow. If they don't have it, there will be tremendous disturbances. See, you must immediately establish why you've come. Jesus said, I've been sent here by my Father. See, Very important that you establish that point that you've been sent under authority. You're a man under authority. You're acting under authority. See, if you do, very quickly, the impression is you well, who is this person? Alright, now, they come down and they minister in a way that's acceptable, provided they have a gift. If they don't have a gift, it's all a farce. Anyhow, it isn't going to work. The reason it works with us is because that authority is really there. But suppose now the person goes someplace and says, I'm here, I'm an authority, and I'm going to run this ship. I say, who sent you? Well, I come in my own authority. I come directly from God. I come from... Oh, go away, fellow man. You see, there's no way to establish your authority. As a matter of fact, it cannot effectively be established that way in the sense of coming under and serving those people in the right way. The authority always must be established from another authority since all authority is delegated anyhow. See, and that's why the laying on of hands signifies the transfer of authority. And when you don't call back to that source... Remember, Paul said... Those things which were given you by the laying on of my hands and prophecy. See, calling back, Timothy, remember the source of that authority. Very important to maintain that. See, then when you break away and try and do it on your own, it gets very funny there. See, if you're talking about authority to lead the body, of course, it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. But you also must mention that you also are under an authority. See, very important that you have. build the authority over you. Let them build your own authority. You never have any problem with the people receiving that and flowing gently in it. It's a good principle. Whenever it's forgotten, you have nothing but troubles beginning. Okay, point number nine. Ministry has the greatest potential to fall into very poor work habits because there is no absolute standard to easily judge by. Elders must be extremely self-disciplined. Very constant thing in your normal church things that a preacher gets up and gives a half hour sermon on Sunday morning, maybe he doesn't show up Sunday night, he goes on conventions all week long or fishing trips and uh, gets somebody to preach for him on Wednesday and he's uh, very poor work habits you can fall into a preacher must be a worker. One thing I really appreciate about my brother Al Tomlin and that man when he gets ready to preach on Sunday, he takes what does he say, three days he takes off? Yeah. And he said I will not apologize now And he said, I will not apologize later. He said, if any of you do not, he said, if you take an hour and a half on Saturday night to get a sermon, he said, that's not even a sermon or words of that effect. See, but what he was really saying, he's a disciplined man in the matters of the word of God. He puts in long hours and hard hours to build the people of God and build the work. Now, it is a very easy thing, however, in the ministry, especially if you're fully supported in the ministry, to do what? Well, you can get a sermon together once you get good at it. You can get a sermon together in ten minutes and you can, uh you know, just and that's that'll get you by. And you can take off and you can be here and there in every place. And, well, I'm off meditating. I'm off thinking about the Lord. I'm off here. and Of course, what you're really doing is fishing, you know. But we always put Christian terms down there. Nothing wrong with fishing. But make sure it's after proper work. See, that you do your work. And then you do things like other people do. And the reason is, see, that... This can be gotten away with as there's no absolute standard of judgment. Now in the world, when you're in business, is there an absolute standard of judgment? Yeah, you either make a sale or you don't. You either close a deal or you don't. You either pay the house or you don't. You either, you know, frame in this house or you didn't frame in the house. I mean, it's very clear. You're either going to get paid or you're not going to get paid. It's very clear, see. So if you come out there and say, well, I think I'll work a half hour today, then I'm going to go off and meditate. Okay, fine. You know what you get paid for? You get paid for a half hour. And then you meditate the rest of your life, because they're going to have somebody who's going to do the work. Right, now, same thing. Meditation is a proper thing for Christians, and especially for ministers. But they've got to make sure that meditation is true meditation in its proper place. And they've got to give time and attention to the saints. They've got to give some hard thought that are problems of the body. They've got to give themselves a the prayer. There's extreme discipline that has to be worked in. Now, that's why I'll get some brothers around me and say, okay, you make sure that I... Now, my appointments. I make sure that my appointments are laid out so there's certain things I have to do. I make sure the brothers meet with me like on Monday, and we're there all day long, so I can apply myself. Otherwise, the temptation might be, as much as I've done good work in the past, the temptation might be, I don't have to quite do that good of work in the future. I've got plenty of good men who could do it, and I could kind of just take it off easier and easier and easier, and finally, I'm not doing any work at all. I must exercise that discipline on myself at all times or I'll find myself getting away from good hard work habits. I never want to get away from that. Okay. Elders must be extremely self-disciplined. And point 10. The ministry must be ready to discharge their duties whether or not they are paid. And I've laid this one out the last, though you've heard me say it many times. You've got to get it down into your spirit and never let it go the ministry must be ready to discharge their duties whether or not they are paid. Now it is the only right that if you are ministering to a congregation that they buy their tithes and offerings and their labors and whatever else that they work to support you if your duties require that much labor toward the body. But if no one in that body supports you, no one in that body supports you, your work is to labor as hard for that body as time and circumstances will allow you to do. Now you have to go out and work eight hours, maybe like everyone else. In that case, if nobody's going to take care of you at all, then go out and work eight hours. But when you get done, when it's time to preach, you preach. When it's time to teach, you teach. If somebody's in need that isn't paying their tithes, but they're in trouble, you go to that person and you help them. That's the only way the body of Christ is built. There must be no thought on the part of the ministry that if I don't get paid, I don't minister. The Bible makes it clear. Freely you have received. Freely give. That's the principle. But, by the same program, wherever I go, I tell the congregations, you take care of those elders, or you take care of the mobile ministry, or you take care of the man of God, or you take care of... See, very important that they get that responsibility. But until they get it, it's the responsibility of the minister because he has a dispensation of the gospel laid on him. Preach the word, no matter. See, this ministry has always had a principle worked into it. That not only do we go out to warfare, but we buy the bullets for the gun, too. Now, normally the principle is what? That no man ever goes to warfare at his own charges. But we do. Paul did. And that's a good principle. I think that's the one principle, along with others. But it's the one principle that I have been so blessed and maybe even proud is the word when our brothers and sisters have gone into hard situations Guatemala, Germany some of those brothers and sisters went through some pretty bad stuff and other Christian groups came to those same places and after just a little bit, man, they said this is too much for me and they took off our brothers and sisters did not take off they hung in there until the work was established and not only is that true That's true in New York when those brothers and sisters were living in Brooklyn. True in L.A. when they were undergoing all kinds of pressures. Everywhere is that same tremendous spirit, freely we have received, freely give. And they keep on giving until the work is established. Now when you go out in the ministry, there must be no thought in your mind, if I don't get paid, I don't preach because I got a right to that money. True, you do have a right to the money. But if you don't get it, you preach anyhow. As a matter of fact, I would hope it gets to the place in you. You'll be tempted. I hope it gets to the place where when you don't get any money, you preach better than if you do get money. That would be the ultimate blessing. I don't want to say the ultimate test, but that would be the ultimate blessing. I think people who are prophets have certain calibering worked into them like the caliber of a rifle. That's there. But whether or not they become a person who steps into the office of a prophet depends on getting their life and that seasoning into their life that the time to come to that is recognized by those in authority and they can have hands laid onto them and they're established in that function. See, now many people, and we've had them in this ministry, definitely have prophetic traits. No question, they'll recognize it absolutely. But they would not submit to that discipling necessary to season their lives long enough so that they could step into the office of a prophet. And many of them shook up and blew out. Now, others, however, are now hanging in there and they're moving steadily toward that office of a prophet. See? Now, there's another thing. That's called the gift of prophecy, which everyone can have. That's nothing to do with the office of a prophet. Different thing altogether. Different thing. One is an office. The other is a gift. Holy Ghost. You can learn to do the work of an evangelist, but you will never be an evangelist unless you have that gift. See, an evangelist has that peculiar power, I can just tell you, I can do the work of an evangelist. But when an evangelist comes alongside me, if the two of us were ministering together, you'd know this man was an evangelist and I was doing the work. I can do it, I can do it pretty well. But it's learned. I've been equipped to do it, but when that evangelist comes, man, there's a whole fire and excitement and life and impartation that's just different from the gift that I have. It's just different, that's all. See, Now, my apostolic gift, I didn't learn that. I'm learning about it, but that was put upon me, and then I began functioning in that gift. But, same situation, that a gift I do not have, I cannot develop but I can learn to do that work. See, like the eldership is to shepherd the body. But they may not all be pastors, but they can learn to shepherd the body. But when a pastor comes in, he's just got a whole different heart, a whole different spirit, a whole different... You just say, man, that man's a pastor. Although I can pastor too. But he's an imparter of that whole heart and mentality and life that just, man, just makes the whole church a caring church. He's just got that ability to do that. A gift is given. First, I might hand you uh, a gift, toy train, here's a gift, now you have it all, don't you? But, now you have to learn how to use it, right? Alright, now, let's say another person comes along and you teach him how to use the toy train. But whose toy train is it? Your train, you have the gift, but I can use it. See, that's the difference, but it's not my toy train. And therefore, because it is yours, you know all about it, and I just use it occasionally. That isn't my work. See, but I'll do it if I have to do it, you know. Okay, but it isn't my thing to do. So I think we're all different, and these gifts, apostle, prophet, are, like the Bible says, they're simply gifts that are showered upon some. But now, here's a man who is an apostle, but he equips the saints for the work of ministry. Now, they can act apostolically, otherwise the word equipping has no meaning, does it? See, if I equip a person to do something I know how to do, they can do it, but they don't become me. I am the equipper, but they can do it. Now, that's basically the principle that we're operating with here. The gift is the gift, but you can learn to do the work of, and that's the whole point of equipping. All right, let's all stand up together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again, Lord, for the impartation that has taken place here tonight. And I know that you are young ministering saints, Lord, that you call in this work. They are absorbing your heart, your mind, your truth, and they are going to carry it through the people of God. They are going to be builders of the church, the specific builders of congregations. They are going to oversee the flocks of God women teaching younger women how to love their husbands and ministry in every direction there are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, Lord that are to be raised up out of this congregation to be sent to the ends of the earth Father, I believe that transformation those gifts Lord, are being clarified right now among us God continue to bring them forth in their fullness we ask these things, Father Father You may be glorified that our Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted. Those things you have determined, Lord, we will have every part in that is possible for us to have part in. We will do that which we've been called to do. Grant that to us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.